into God's Word this morning. Matthew chapter 19, as we continue our study in the book of Matthew and come to the end of Matthew chapter 19. We'll be in verses 23 through 30 this morning, and the title of this morning's message is Riches and the Kingdom of God. Riches and the Kingdom of God. Uh, now, money has always been an important part of life for people, right? Ever since the first coin was minted, uh, money became a very indispensable part of our existence. Um, but in America, there's been some changes over the last 20 years regarding our attitude towards money and wealth. Changes that actually reveal that for some people, money has become more important than religion. A Fortune magazine uh, notes that in a survey first done in the year 2000, money was extremely important to 67% of people, whereas religion was only slightly less important at, at around uh, 65% of people. But fast forward to the year 2023, money is now vitally important to 79% of people, while religion has actually gone down, only being important to 58% of people. Money has become more important to people, religion and, and faith, has become less. Now we live in a time right now where inflation is very high, right? Here in Nevada, housing and cost of living uh, is at a, seems all-time high level, right? Many of us feel the pinch of our current economic situation, and, and we're probably thinking more about money now uh, than perhaps at other times in the past. And of course, ironically, we are much wealthier here, right, uh, than other parts of the world. But we think about money a lot, don't we? And it may be taboo to talk about money in social settings, but the Bible is not shy at all about addressing the topic of wealth and riches. And in our text this morning, Jesus discusses how fixation on earthly wealth actually keeps many people out of the kingdom of heaven, but at the same time reveals that the only ultimate and lasting treasure is not found here on earth, but is found in heaven. Let's read our text, starting in verse 23. <clears throat> And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me as we hear it this morning? Oh, our great God and our King, this is your word. Lord, on the outside it may look like any other book, but we know that the words on the pages of Scripture are unlike any other, because they are directly from you. They are perfect. They are inspired. They are infallible, without error. They are not the opinions of men, but they are the truth and the revelation of you, the Almighty and true God. 
And so as we hear them this morning, Lord, as we hear the teaching of Jesus about wealth and about riches, Lord, I ask that you would cause us to look at our own hearts, to examine our own attitudes towards money and wealth in relation to your kingdom. And Father, we thank you that you do not shy away from these topics that are maybe socially uh, insensitive, Lord, in our, our culture, uh, but that you speak directly to them and that you tell us exactly how we should view these things. Lord, we thank you so much for how clear your word is and how through it you teach us not only who you are, but how to live as your people. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless your word this morning. Holy Spirit, give us understanding. Work in our hearts that we would be made more like Jesus Christ. And help me, Lord, to be clear and helpful to your people and exalting to your name. And we ask all this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we saw Jesus deal with a rich young ruler who approached Jesus and said, What good deeds do I need to do to have eternal life? Now, Jesus made clear to this young man that there was no amount of good works he could do to enter heaven, right? No amount of good deeds that could bring a sinner into God's presence. But it's only faith in Jesus Christ that brings a person into the kingdom. And Jesus revealed that the rich young ruler loved his earthly wealth more than anything else. He was unwilling to give it up for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And it seems that that episode with the rich young ruler actually provides the occasion for our text this morning. As the rich young ruler walks away from Jesus and his disciples, we look at verse 23 and we see that Jesus now turns to his followers. He turns to his disciples and provides a little bit of commentary on the incident. And, and he begins with one of his trademark phrases, Truly I tell you. Now Jesus uses this at certain times to make clear what I'm about to say is indisputable. Listen up. There's no room for argument on this one. And it's followed by this. Only with difficulty will a rich person, like that rich young ruler, enter the kingdom of heaven. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus doesn't say how difficult it will be here in verse 23, but he makes it very, very clear that rich people will not naturally enter the kingdom of heaven. It is not easy, but difficult. Now, of course, we have to ask, what does Jesus mean by rich people, right? Or is he using income brackets to determine that? Or how's he, how's he deciding what that means? Uh, is he just referring to anybody who has property or wealth? Well, uh, probably at some level, right? Jesus is talking about people who are rich. But whenever we see Jesus teaching, he always goes where? To the heart, right? He always goes right to the heart. Um, I think Jesus is going quite a bit deeper than just how much is in your bank account. He goes right to what we love and, and what we desire. So when Jesus says rich people, he's ultimately talking about people not just who have a lot of possessions and money, but who greatly love possessions and money. That's the kind of person Jesus has in mind here. Not just people who may have a lot of possessions, but people who are devoted to and who love more than anything else their riches and possessions. Those kinds of people that find their identity and their satisfaction in earthly wealth and treasure. And, and no, there's, there's no income bracket that determines that. You could have any, any number of money or possessions or riches and be devoted to them. And Jesus is clear, it's very difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven if you love riches. Now the Bible does not condemn the possession of wealth. The Bible at no point says it's bad to have lots of money. But the Bible does, again and again and again, warn about the spiritual dangers of riches. Of the way that the human heart tends to be drawn towards 
wealth and that when it has it, it only wants more and that when it has it, it tends to trust in that instead of in the Lord. Um, the, the Bible's teaching of wealth could really be summarized in Psalm 62.10. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Why does the Bible take this approach to riches? Why is the Bible so concerned about this? Why does the Bible teach that a love of money is incompatible with God's values and God's kingdom? Why does Jesus say it is so difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? Um, well, I think there's at least three reasons we can see. First, the Bible teaches that the love of money is the root of many evils, and a desire to be rich leads to destruction. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 9 and 10 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Are pretty serious words, aren't they? It's not a sin to have money, but loving money and riches never leads to anything good or godly. And as we just heard, a consuming love of wealth will actually lead you away from Christ Jesus. A desire for riches and a love of money is a serious spiritual danger that leaves open a very wide door to temptation. So, first, the Bible teaches that the love of money is the root of all evils and leads to destruction. That's why it takes it so seriously. Uh, secondly, the Bible teaches that the love of money actually chokes out the gospel in a person's heart. It actually chokes out the word of the kingdom in their heart. Jesus describes this in the parable of the sower. Uh, he, he describes the, the seed that is sown among the thorns, right? The, the person who hears the gospel and, and hears what those thorns represent. He says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the person who hears the word, right? They hear the gospel, and at first they may receive it well, but... He goes on to say, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. It proves unfruitful, right? Notice how he describes riches there, deceitful, deceitful. Is, is the word of the kingdom deceitful? Absolutely not. Are riches deceitful? Yes, yes they are. And God's kingdom, God's gospel values very different things than earthly riches. It values joy, peace, Patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control. It values His glory above everything else. Right? It values the salvation of souls. It values generosity and sacrificial kindness. And those things cannot and will not coexist with a consuming love of wealth. You can't have both. It's impossible. The love of money is never really satisfied. It demands more money, more wealth, more investments, growth, growth, growth. And while building wealth, again, is not a bad thing, being consumed with building wealth can very quickly lead you to be more concerned with your earthly kingdom than God's. It can make you more concerned with your portfolio than with prayer. It can make you more concerned about dollars and cents than about doing God's will according to His Word. It will make you more concerned about equity than eternal life. So that's the second reason. The Bible is so concerned about the effect riches have on the human heart, it chokes out the gospel and makes people unfruitful in discipleship to Jesus. And the third reason is that the Bible teaches that the love of money really is nothing less than serving a different master than God. Uh, again, Jesus addresses this earlier in Matthew. All the way back in Matthew 6.24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money, he says. It really gets um, no more black and white than that. Again, Jesus is not talking about being a good steward of money or having responsible concern or taking care of our families. He's talking about being devoted to money, right? About, about loving that above everything else at the end of the day, right? And at the end of the day, you can only be devoted to one thing above everything else. Our heart has no room for equal affection for a chief good. It's only room for one. If you're devoted to money, you're not devoted to God. That's what Jesus says. And that's why Jesus takes this approach here. This is why Jesus says it is only with difficulty that a rich person can enter the kingdom of heaven. Because of the immensely debilitating effects that riches can have on the human heart. Now, of course, it's not riches that corrupt the heart, but rather the heart that pursues riches to its own corruption. As we come to verse 24, Jesus finally reveals just how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, and this is a well-known teaching of Jesus, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now the camel in, in Palestine was the largest animal commonly found there. And the eye of a needle, of course, is very, very, very tiny. It's hard enough to put thread through a needle, right? Much less a camel. And Jesus' point is that it's not just difficult. It's impossible. It is impossible for a rich person who is devoted to their wealth above all things to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's how difficult it is. Impossible. Cannot be done. Now, there, there's a, a bit of a misconception out there that the eye of the needle refers to a small gate in a city wall that was made for people to walk through, and, and maybe with enough squeezing you could get a camel through there. Um, but there's no actual historical proof that a gate was ever called the eye of a needle, right? That's kind of this, this uh, urban legend, right? Um, Jesus' point is exactly what it sounds like, trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It is that impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven if they are devoted to wealth as the greatest thing in their life. Now, if you are consumed with cares about your, your finances and about gaining more wealth, whether you actually have it or not, that's the thing. You don't have to actually possess that wealth for your heart to be consumed with the idea of it, right? You need to take Jesus' words very seriously here. You will not enter the kingdom of Christ if money is your king. So, friend, what are you devoted to? Are you devoted to riches? Are you devoted to worldly wealth? Is your goal to become wealthy? Do you think that you'll be happy once you have those possessions and that, that money that you, that you think you lack? That'll lead you to nothing but passing happiness and ultimately to spiritual poverty and ultimately to eternal destruction. Consider and weigh out whether riches and possessions are more valuable than your own soul. Now, Jesus is clear. It is impossible for a person consumed and devoted to money to enter his kingdom. And, and the disciples hear Jesus' teaching. They hear what he's saying. And in verse five, we see, or 25, we, we see they are greatly astonished. They don't go, yeah, that, that makes sense, Jesus. Of course, of course rich people can't enter the kingdom. No, they are shocked. They're astonished. And, and they ask Jesus a question, who then can be saved? Right? And we have to realize that um, in their culture, in their day and age, the rich people would be the successful ones. The examples to follow. Those people clearly are blessed by God. 
because look how much money he's given them, right? So for them to hear, what do you mean it's impossible for those people to enter the kingdom of heaven? That's a shocker. That's a shocker. And there's a very popular teaching today called the prosperity gospel. That sounds like many of you have heard of it before. Um, and the prosperity gospel is the idea and the teaching that God's greatest desire for your life is to make you rich, healthy, prosperous, successful. Um, this is a very popular teaching in America, which makes sense because Americans are consumed with wealth, health, prosperity, and success. And perhaps the disciples have, have maybe even had a little bit of their own prosperity gospel going on here. The idea that, that from a worldly perspective, the rich and successful and the prosperous are more blessed by God and, and therefore more likely to enter the kingdom. But Jesus has just declared the opposite. That wealth is actually a hindrance to entering the kingdom. So if you ever hear somebody say, hey, God wants you to be wealthy. Or if you ever hear somebody say, hey, should the children of the king be dressed in rags? God wants you to be rich and healthy and just have more faith and he'll give you more things. You, you, you can say, um, that is straight out of the pit of hell. And do not listen to that, brothers and sisters. Jesus makes it so clear right here how wrong that teaching is. But the disciples, are, they're looking at this in terms of man's power and ability. Right? If the rich who have amassed all this wealth for themselves cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, well then who can? Uh, and, and Jesus, verse 26, looks at them. It's not an accident that that detail is included in there. And I, I, I just imagine this scene where the disciples are, what? And Jesus just gives them this stare. Right? He just looks directly at them because he wants them to hear what he's going to say. Right? He's getting down to the bottom line. He looks at them directly. He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are impossible. With man, according to man's power and ability, regardless of how much money he may have, it is impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because man cannot and will not change his own heart or her own heart. The rich person cannot and will not change his or her heart to be less devoted to money and more devoted to God. Sure, maybe they see some of the effects that riches have and they want to live a simple life and they can be generous and all that. That's, and that's all well and good, but that's not the kind of heart change God is looking for to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not looking for people to just be more moral, right? The rich are captive to their sinful nature, just like any person is apart from Christ, just like you and I are apart from Christ. And that's the thing. It's not just impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven unassisted. It's impossible for any person to enter the kingdom of heaven unassisted, right? By their own initiation. That's impossible for anybody. Whether you're the poorest of the poor or the richest of the rich, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven on your own merit, your own work, your own will. It won't happen. We read this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. Let's turn back there for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. And these words describe the spiritual state that, that all people are born into, whether rich or poor. Ephesians chapter 2. Just starting in, in verse 1, we read that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Do we see the love of riches in there? Yes, that's included in there as well. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's pause there for a moment. Now just look at the words used to describe human beings in our natural, wild, national geographic state. Dead? Trespasses and sins? Desires of the flesh? Right? Living for those passions? Children of wrath? Following the prince of the power of the air? Sons of disobedience? Yikes! But apart from Christ, that's who any of us were or are. Now, what would such people, described that way, want with a holy God? What would such people want with His kingdom? What would such people want with His Son? For us to remain in that state, dead in trespasses and sins, following Satan, Him being our King, so to speak, doing the, the slave work of our passions and our mind, it is impossible we would ever be able to give ourselves faith in Christ Jesus and repent of our sins. There is no room for that in these verses. This is a closed loop here. It's impossible for people who are devoted to riches to change themselves into Christians. It's impossible for anyone to change themselves into a Christian. With man, Jesus says, it is impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible by your own strength, your own will, your own ability, your own goodness to break out of these four verses here. Three verses here. It's not going to happen. And if that was the end of Jesus' words, right, with man it is impossible, period, that'd be a hopeless state, right? But Jesus doesn't leave us dead in our sinfulness. No, he says, with God, all things are possible. That's good news. With man, it is impossible. Right? That's not good news. But with God, all things are possible. That is great news. All things, even the salvation of the rich, even the salvation of sinners. With God, it is possible. Right? We just heard about our impossibly sinful state from Ephesians 2. But listen to what the very next verse in Ephesians 2 says. Look at verse 4. But God, two words that change everything. There's those closed loop, right? That, that closed loop of those first three verses. And God just smashes right through it. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Friends, God doesn't wait for you to become alive in your trespasses or to get out of there to save you. No, he does that when you are even dead in your trespasses, even in that sinful state. He made us alive together with Christ. By His grace you have been saved. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Even for dead sinners to be given new life in Christ Jesus. You cannot save yourself. You cannot bring yourself into God's kingdom, but it is not at all impossible for God to save you. It is not at all impossible for God to save you. You're not too rich for God to save. You're not too poor for God to save. You're not too sinful for God to save. You're not too much of a mess for God to save. You have not ruined your life so much that God cannot save you out of it. 
With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God is not just able, but friends, He is eager and willing and mighty to save all sorts of people. And whoever you are, wherever you may be at, you are not outside of His reach. If salvation was left in your hands, it would be impossible. But God's hands are the hands that reach down to pull up dead sinners from the bottom of the sea. And in the context of rich people devoted to money, God not only saves rich people, but He changes rich people. He changes rich people. He changes their hearts from loving wealth to loving Him. From pride to humility, from earthly mindedness to heavenly mindedness, from greed to generosity. And you, you may not be rich, but we can marvel at what God does in people who are rich, can't we? And God doesn't necessarily take away the riches of those that He brings into His kingdom, but He changes what they use it for and how they view it. The Apostle Paul addresses wealthy Christians in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 and 19. He, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. I love that. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In the same way, Romans 12.8 describes how some people are actually spiritually gifted to be able to contribute to the work of ministry and the advance of the gospel, the needs of the saints, financially, that God actually equips some Christians to do that more than others, and that if they are gifted that way, they're to do so with generosity. So, so we see that not only does God bring wealthy people into his kingdom, but he doesn't need to take away their money to do it. Now, sometimes he does. Uh, the great uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle, a very, very godly man in the 19th century, came from a very rich family, and God destroyed their finances. And yet it was through that he worked in J.C. Ryle's life to make J.C. Ryle a triumphant defender of the gospel in England while the rest of the Church of England was walking away from it. So sometimes God does do that. Sometimes he does take away wealth. But I think more often he redeems wealth. And through rich people, rich Christians, uses it to bless others and to contribute to the progress of the gospel throughout the world. That's awesome, right? That God is able to take something that um, the Bible warns so much against, right, in, in our sinful state, and He's able to use that for such good to bring Himself glory. That's awesome. Uh, yet at the same time, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that being rich offers nobody any special privileges when it comes to entering the kingdom. It doesn't give them a higher place in the church. It's not like the airlines, right? Shelby and I flew this last week. We were... Um, coming and going from Kansas City, and, and we're the last boarding group, right? Number nine, getting on the plane. And we're watching all these other people get on way before us, right? Um, because they've paid extra money, right? They've paid for first class, or they've paid for a priority boarding, right? It doesn't work like that in the kingdom of heaven. You can't do that. You can't pay for a higher place in God's kingdom. You enter by the grace of God, just like anybody else. But for the disciples, this is a shocking revelation. Um, even what Jesus just said, right? They're, they're wrestling over there. They're, they're grappling with it. They, they're having a hard time. 
And Peter, the, the usual spokesperson for the twelve disciples, he speaks up in verse 27. And he says, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Peter, I think, reveals the mindset of the rest of the disciples here. He's speaking for all of them. And they've just been told that the rich cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Peter and the twelve are not rich, right? Maybe middle class, um, but certainly not rich. And it seems that they are concerned they're going to be in a worse position than the rich. But at the same time, Peter um, also seems to think that we're entitled for something, right? We, we've sacrificed. What are we going to get? And in the Greek, uh, we, we can't quite see it in the English, but in the Greek, Peter actually places an emphasis at the beginning of this question where he's saying, we've left everything. Look what we did, Jesus. We left everything to follow you, right? It seems that he's comparing himself and the twelve to the rich young ruler. Right? Unlike that guy who just walked away, we left everything, Jesus. We, we did this, right? It's, it's kind of smug. A little self-righteous, maybe. We're not like that rich guy, right? We did what you called us to do. And yet at the same time, they did. They did leave everything. And they did follow Jesus. Um, and Peter and the disciples are concerned about what will be left to them, right? If we've left all this stuff behind, if we've abandoned our own opportunities to build earthly wealth, like leaving a fishing business behind, right? That's one-third of the disciples right there. Or, or no longer collecting taxes, which could make you a pretty penny. We've left all that behind. If we've, we've left our families behind to follow you, what are we going to be left with? In other words, what will God give us to make up for our earthly and financial loss? The disciples are still concerned about wealth, it, it seems. But this question reveals that there's, there's still so much they don't understand. Um, Charles Spurgeon on this, this verse remarks that what Peter said was true, but not wisely spoken. Um, <laughs> which, which is usually the case for Peter. After all, what have any of us to lose for Jesus compared to what we gain by him? Himself is reward enough to the soul that has him. And indeed, Christ is the greatest treasure of all, but the disciples are not yet satisfied with him. Right? What will we have left? But in verse 28 and 29, Jesus gives them an answer that there will be reward enough for those who forsake their earthly attachments to follow him. And in verse 28, he describes their reward in terms of status. And in verse 29, he describes their reward in terms of compensation. We look at verse 28 and, and Jesus says, Truly I say to, them, uh, to say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on Twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's the first part of his answer to them. And this is a, an interesting verse that can be interpreted a couple different ways. And we see that, that phrase, the new world, literally translated, that's the regeneration. The regeneration, which describes a renewal, a remaking of all things, which I think points us forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Right? And the new heavens and the new earth, uh, that's that's the, the time period Jesus is talking about here, the end of the age, after the second coming of Christ. And during this time, Jesus says, the Son of Man will sit on his throne, consummating his rule and reign as the eternal king. Uh, we see this kind of picture in Matthew 25, right, where Jesus sits on the throne, uh, judging all people, separating the sheep and the goats, right? Same, same thing, I think. 
But notice that Jesus promises the disciples participation in His authority and His reign, doesn't He? He says, you also will sit on thrones. You who have followed Me will also sit on thrones and rule and reign. And that's a theme that occurs several times in Scripture, like 2 Timothy 2.12, which says, if we endure, we also will reign with Him. So Jesus is clear, you'll get to reign with Me. I'm going to elevate your, your status. You're going to sit on thrones too if you have followed Me. Now, where this gets a little tricky interpretation-wise, and we're not going to spend too much time on this today, is Jesus' mention of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, is this literally a regathering of the 12 tribes? Are these ethnic Jews that Jesus is talking about? Um, well, that's one way you could interpret it. Uh, that's a little difficult, though, because 10 of the 12 tribes, which made up the northern kingdom, were wiped out through intermarriage with various pagan peoples as a result of the Assyrian occupation. And they became the Samaritans. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. I suggest the better interpretation is to understand this as a reference to uh, spiritual Israel, to the entire people of God, both Jew and Gentile, and that Jesus is speaking um, more graphically and figuratively than he is literally. In other words, Jesus' point here uh, is not that you're going to have 12 apostles reigning over 12 tribes of ethnic Jews, right? His point is that everyone who has followed him, that's what he says in verse 28, right? Everyone who has followed me will reign alongside him. That's the main point, right? That's the main point. He's speaking in language that the disciples will understand. Um, but this is what we see in Revelation 20. All the saints reigning with Christ. His point really is this. Whatever you as a disciple lose in this life, however low your status may become as a result of following Jesus, ultimately, and at the end of the age, that status will be elevated in Christ. You will reign with Him. That's a wonderful thing. And in verse 29, Jesus then encourages the disciples that whatever earthly possessions or relationships or land, right? He's pretty comprehensive here. Father, mother, sister, brother, children. Those are all the important ones, aren't they? Whatever land you leave behind, right? whatever possessions you leave behind to follow Him, He says they will receive 100-fold more than that and will inherit eternal life to boot. That's an encouragement, isn't it? Now, some of you have, have maybe lost relationships or, or friendships because of your Christian faith. But you receive a greater family in Christ, being adopted into the family of God. All right, we receive a greater dwelling place in Christ as we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, and we dwell with God forever. We receive a better country in Christ since we've become citizens of a heavenly country. Right? Philippians 2, and a, an unshakable kingdom. Hebrews 12. And on top of that, we receive an eternal life that never, never ends. And tied in with that is eternal fellowship with God. That's as much as you could ever ask for. But notice where all these blessings are found, friend. They're found in Christ. They're found in Christ. Those blessings are not the end goal in and of themselves, right? And sometimes people think about heaven and they go, man, there's going to be like the greatest snowboard ramp of all time. Right? Or there's going to be the best trout stream of all time right there. And, um, and, and you know, who knows, right? Who knows? But that's not what we should be thinking about. Right? That's not what we should be fixated on. People get fixated on the details of the heavenly rewards, right? 
That's a distraction from the greatest treasure we receive, which is Christ himself. That's what the disciples are missing here, right? The Apostle Paul describes the right mindset for us, and, and I would say for the twelve, when he says in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What powerful words. And, and for those of you who may not know, the Apostle Paul was not a burger flipper at McDonald's, okay? No offense if you work at McDonald's. The Apostle Paul was a rising star in the Jewish religious community. His name was well known, right? He had a great religious pedigree. He was probably very well off, or at least very well respected. And he says, all of that I count as loss. And he had a lot to lose. But it was rubbish. It was garbage. It was dung. That's how valuable it was to him compared to Christ Jesus. That's how much dollars and cents meant to Paul compared to Christ Jesus. It was like, burn those bills. I'll take Christ. When you think about eternal life and the new creation, is, is being with Christ the thing you look forward to the most? Now, friends, this life is fleeting. It's passing. And, and even heavenly rewards, whatever that might look like, they're not ultimate. The greatest treasure is Christ, the King of the kingdom. And in Christ's kingdom, the values are, are completely the opposite of the kingdom of the world. And, and that's what we see in verse 30. Many who are first will be last and the last first. And Jesus continues to turn things on their, their head here when he states one of his most well-known teachings. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And we say this to our kids all the time when they're like, me first, me first. The rich who are often first in this world may well enter the kingdom. It's possible by the grace of God. But in God's economy, it may well be the poor who served Christ with greater faith and zeal. And the rich may enter by the grace of God, but it may be those who had little who walked more closely with Christ. Now, did you know another, another statistic that in countries where there is the most wealth, there is the least amount of faith and religiosity. And yet in countries where there is the least amount of wealth, there are the greatest amounts of faith and religiosity. I don't think that's a coincidence. And in some ways, this is the entire principle of Jesus' teaching. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Friends, are you desiring to be first? Are you desiring to be wealthy, successful, well-known? Are you desiring fame and fortune or a platform in the world, be very careful. Because if you make it into the kingdom at all, be at the back of the line. I know it is far better to have little, but to be content with Christ, the greatest treasure of all. And may we learn to say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, there is truly no greater treasure than you. Lord, you have made us that we might enjoy you and glorify you forever. And truly, there is greater satisfaction in that than in all the riches this world could afford. 
And Father, would you help us to examine our hearts? For few, if any of us, could claim to be uh, perhaps even wealthy by worldly standards, Lord. But would you help us to examine our hearts to see if there is that consuming desire for riches? And if so, Lord, would you help us to repent of that, to put it aside, and by your grace to treasure Christ Jesus, in whom are all the spiritual blessings in heaven. Lord, you have given us so much more than we could ask for. Would you help us to be content with it and to see that our true riches are found in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Lord, as uh, the old song says, rather have Jesus than silver or gold. May that be a true of us, Lord. May you be our great portion and our prize. And may we say with Paul that we, we count all things as loss. We're willing to give it all up for knowing you more. Oh God, you're so good to us and so kind. Thank you for providing what we do have. Help us to use our material possessions and, and money for your glory. Lord, to bless others. And that the gospel might advance and uh, that you would be exalted through our good works. Lord, we thank you and pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.